If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, We've got an interview with the military historian, author and broadcaster James Holland. James's most recent book is Sicily 43, which narrates the huge Allied invasion of Sicily on the 10th of July 1943 and the subsequent battle to capture the island from German and Italian forces. It's a story that James has explored for the January issue of BBC History magazine. And for the podcast, he was joined in conversation by the magazine's editor, Rob Attar. First of all, what was the situation in the war prior to the assault in Sicily? Well, it's a, it's a really, really interesting moment because I suppose you, you have to sort of go back to January 1943 in the Casablanca Conference, which is where the Chiefs of Staff of both the United States and Britain plus Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President uh, um, Franklin Roosevelt, they all meet up to kind of talk about what strategy they're going to do. And, you know, there is this real sense that the tide has turned and, and that they're kind of, you know... that. Their material might is is starting to be kind of unbeatable. Plus, there are certain things in place where they they're starting to kind of sort of work out how they can operate together, which is quite interesting. I mean, you know, one has to remember that the Americans and British are coalition partners, not formal allies. Um, so there are sort of certain constraints about that, but there's also certain freedoms as a result of that as well. And one of the things that they 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 decide is that they're going to win the Battle of the Atlantic. That is their absolute number one priority. And the great thing about winning the Battle of the Atlantic means that then they can guarantee how much shipping they're going to get when a convoy sets out from the United States or wherever, for example, to within a couple of percentage points, which suddenly means you can start mounting proper, serious operations because you know what's coming. I mean, one of the things that really does for Rommel in the summer of 1942 is that his future, uh, his planned assault and what becomes the Battle of Alam Halfa at the very end of August 1942 is completely predicated on the fact that he's going to get six 
ship's um, oil tankers come through, and every single one of them is sunk. So it completely scuppers his plans, totally. The Allies, by, by May 1943, when, that has, when the Battle of the Atlantic has effectively been won, that, that problem has now gone, which means they can start mounting really serious proper operations. At the time of Casablanca, they're still in North Africa, they're in Tunisia, and actually the campaign in Tunisia at that moment isn't going particularly well because Hitler has decided to reinforce Tunisia far more greatly than the Allies had ever appreciated. You know, not just huge numbers of Luftwaffe aircraft, for example. You know, thousands of them, plus tanks, plus armoured units, plus shipping, you know, the whole shebang. I mean, they really, really, he really, really does go for it because Hitler quite understandably recognises that if he loses North Africa, he's probably lost Italy. And if he loses Italy, then he's got a major headache on his hand because suddenly he's got to deal with the southern flank. And that's always been his big paranoia. It's really interesting how history is. The narrative of the Second World War has always been that it's the Brits who are obsessed with the Mediterranean strategy and, you know, and everyone else is kind of sort of thinks it's a sideshow. Well, actually, the person who's really obsessed with the Mediterranean strategy is Hitler because, you know, Nazi Germany is in the middle of Europe. He's got the West to deal with, you know, that lurking threat of Britain on his on his Western flank. And obviously, as a result of that, the United States, obviously, he's got his hands full with the Eastern Front. The last thing he wants is to be worrying about the Southern Front as well. And yet, with Italy out of the war, that's what he's going to have to do. Or he's going to have to retreat all the way back up through the leg of Italy, abandon the Aegean, um, abandon the Mediterranean entirely. And that that comes with all sorts of problems, not least because the only real oil he has comes from Romania. And that's obviously in the Balkans. uh, And that would obviously be threatened if the southern flank is completely abandoned. So that is why he's reinforcing Tunisia. But... It's a it's a reinforcement that is doomed to fail, and and, and the Allies in January 1943 at the time of the Casablanca Conference completely understand that. You know, it might they might still have some hard yards to go, but ultimately they are going to win because materially they can't be defeated because they're getting ever ever stronger, and so that proves to be the case. In in the 13th of May 1943, Tunisia is won, um, and it is a it is an immense victory for the Allies, and it's an immense victory for Britain, but also for the United States. Although the United States' contribution on the ground is very small, it's one corps. Um, so, you know, a handful of, of infantry divisions incorporated into the 1st British Army alongside the 8th British Army. Um, in terms of air power, there are more US aircraft in the in the air by the end of the Tunisia campaign than, than British. And, of course, in terms of naval power also, it is you know, making no small contribution, although not as great as the Royal Navy. So it's a big, big operation. It's absolutely hats off to Britain, who, you know, just three years before were kind of horribly defeated, retreating back from Dunkirk, abandoning all their kit and all the rest of it. You know, it's an amazing turnaround event. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, 250,000 Axis POWs plus all that kit and something like 2,600 Luftwaffe aircraft destroyed between November 1942 and May 1943. So that is a staggering number. I mean, really, really huge number. Um, and obviously, I can't remember what the Allies are saying, well, OK, so what do we do next? You know, we, we realistically can't cross the channel um, into Normandy until 1944. We just simply don't have the material strength. More importantly, we don't have the shipping available to, to do that because when you're when you're um, launching an amphibious operation, there is one overriding proviso, and that is that it doesn't fail. So you have to do absolutely everything you possibly can to ensure that it is a success and not a failure. And so that means 
if you're a bit half cock, if you're kind of going for it, but it might be a bit of a cock up and it might, you know, you might get turned back, don't do it. <laughs> do it only when you when your chances of success are really, really in your favour. But you've got these huge forces now. You've got these huge air forces, naval forces, ground forces in North Africa not really doing anything. What are they going to do until May 1944, which at the time is when D-Day is planned, you know, Operation Overlord is planned. Might as well do something. So the British say, well, let's go into Sicily because it's an obvious one. It's an island. It's, it's, it means we can maintain air cover from, from Malta, which is still in our hands despite being besieged all these years. Um, from airfields in the Cap Bon Peninsula in northeast Tunisia, we can, we can, we can have airfields and um, um, air cover. Um, we've got all these forces. And, and, you know, if that might well kind of finally knock Italy out of the war and um, it's an entry into Europe. Psychologically, it's very important. And if we can knock Italy out of the war, then what a huge benefit that's going to be. That's going to withdraw troops from the Western Front. It's going to withdraw troops from the Eastern Front. So that keeps Stalin happy. You know, what's not to like? Um, and the Americans sort of go, yeah, okay, fair enough. But, you know, we really want to go across the channel and 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 that's our prime priority. But, yeah, maybe we should do this. And so it's agreed. The problem with it, it's a very, very difficult operation to mount because actually the distances involved are quite huge. You've got half your land forces being transported from from Egypt, which is kind of 900 miles away, the rest from Tunisia and Algeria, which is several hundred miles away. Um, It's across the entire stretch of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, You've never done it before. The United States Army particularly is still very, very new to war, just one corps operating in Tunisia. They've never at this point mounted a field army anywhere in World War II. Um, so there's all sorts of uncertainties, all sorts of unknowables. And the big problem is that the planning for Sicily, which poses all sorts of problems about shipping and supplies and, and resupply once you're there and all the rest of it, and um, is being conducted while they're still fighting the Tunisian campaign. And most of the senior ca- commanders are earmarked for for Sicily, Operation Huskies, it's going to be called, um, are, are fighting and, and commanding in, in North Africa, which means they're kind of sort of slightly got their eye on what's happening right the here and now rather than the planning for Sicily. So they're juggling a lot of balls, spinning a lot of plates. Um, but as it happens, they still managed to come up with a, a, with a decent plan by the beginning of May 1943. Um, and, and I think it's this really, really important moment because I think just at that moment, the end of the Tunisian campaign, the launch of, of the assault on, on Sicily in July, you see this, this suddenly this sort of increased professionalism in the British and American armies where they suddenly go, ah, we've worked out how to do this. You know, we're, we're a complete air, land and sea operation here. Okay, so Soviet Union is basically land with close air support, um, and that is how the uh, that that's how the German arm, you know, the Wehrmacht is operating as well. But we're a tri-service thing, you know, we're we're a sort of brotherhood of air, land, and sea power, and they're just starting to work that out. And many of the concerns in the planning for Sicily derive from uncertainty about what air power can achieve in beforehand. Can we neutralise the Luftwaffe and the Regia Aeronautica, the, the Italian Air Force, before we land? Can we do that sufficiently to make sure that a, a landing that's predominantly in the south and southeast of Sicily and rather in the west of Sicily is going to be okay? You know, Can we neutralise um, Axis supply lines going into Sicily? And, and the answer by the 10th of July 1943, which is when the invasion is launched, is a resounding yes. I mean, air power is just absolutely key to the whole thing. But also supporting naval power, because, of course, naval power can support land troops on the ground. It can also support the air forces. 
but also the air power is, is supporting the the, um, the naval forces who are very vulnerable at the point of, of, of an amphibious operation because, of course, they've all got to come to a halt. They're no longer moving uh, or, or they're moving very slowly. Um, and so there is this kind of symbiosis which they're suddenly working out. Uh, and that is a that is a war winning strategy in the war in the West, um, and it proves incredibly effective. And it is further honed as time goes on throughout the Sicily campaign and into southern Italy, of course, and in, in Normandy and northwest Europe as well. But it is you're seeing the beginning of that, and the Germans and the Italians simply don't have an answer to it. But at this moment of invasion, Operation Husky, there is still sufficient uncertainty about whether the coalition of America and Britain have got it right, about whether America land forces, the 7th Army as it becomes under George Patton for Sicily, is going to be good enough. There's a sufficient uncertainty there to make that landing very, very cautious. You know, lots of boots on the ground up front to make sure to you know that they don't. there's no cock-up, um, sort of feeling their way, working it all out. And I think there is this sort of, um, sort of collective, collective sort of relief that actually... This is going to work. Within a few days of the Sicilian campaign being launched, it is clear that the invasion has been a success. That actually they're not going to be destroyed by on the ground by the uh, uh, um, by the Luftwaffe or the Regia Aeronautica. I mean, it's predicted, for example, that there's going to be over. You know, that there is a fear that there is going to be over three hundred vessels lost in the invasion. That is what they prepared for. That is their kind of worst case scenario. And in fact, it's twelve, including landing craft. You know, so suddenly it's like. Ah, okay, this is going to work. And I think that's, that is why this is such an interesting moment in the Second World War. And could you give us an idea of the scale of the amphibious assault on Sicily? How unprecedented was this? Yeah, I mean, it's completely unprecedented. Time At the time, it is the single largest amphibious operation that has ever been mounted in the history of the world. And in terms of boots on the ground landed or dropped from the air, it is the largest Ever so, one hundred sixty thousand men dropped and uh, dropped and landed in the first twenty four hours, which is which is more than than um, on D Day, um, just under a year later. In terms of of aircraft, it's it's not far less than than D Day either. It's about three and a half thousand. In terms of shipping, it's only about two thousand six hundred or something, um, which is substantially less than the nearly seven thousand vessels used in D Day. And that is the really big big difference. So that limits how much you can actually land and deposit on on D-Day and how quickly you can you can support that and bring that up. And of course, don't forget that in D-Day, you're shuttling back between Normandy and, and the south coast of England, you know, a matter of sort of 70 to 90 miles, whereas you've got hundreds of miles to go uh, for Sicily. So maintaining that supply of around 6,000 tonnes of supplies a day is really, really tough. Uh, and if one, if there's one particularly amazing lesson from Sicily, it is that the Allies can deliver that. I mean, that is absolutely amazing that they can deliver six thousand tons of of equipment every single day, most of which has just been deposited straight onto beaches, and and that is a game changer for Normandy. So, um, as far as future operations go, it's also a kind of you know it's a massive. The important testing ground, but the scale of the scale of Sicily is just mind numbing, uh, and it's only when you start thinking about the shipping involved in Normandy that it becomes even more mind numbing. But 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 it is it is so complicated, and, and and you know you can't stress enough that this is just eighteen months after Pearl Harbor, you know, or nineteen months after Pearl Harbor. This is this is 
in nine months after the Americans first land in Northwest Africa. You know, so so Britain and America are really new to operating side by side at this stage. I mean, nine months is absolutely nothing. And and, and yet they pull it off, you know, and I, I think it's just unbelievably impressive. And and as you suggest, the landings themselves go go quite smoothly, but the fighting itself is then quite difficult, isn't it? Could you give us a sense of what it's like actually trying to fight your way through Sicily? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Sicily, Rob, but it's it's it's, it's, it's it's still a. I mean, even today, it is an incredibly intimidating place to kind of to, you know geographically to maneuver around. I mean, it's a beautiful island. It's got all that sort of incredible history and everything, but. You've only got to be sort of, you know, speeding around in your car for a little bit to suddenly realise the challenges that face anyone trying to invade this island and and, and conquer it. Uh, and similarly, you can also see the huge advantage there are for the defender. So even on the uh, on the landing beaches on the southeast, there's huge escarpments of rock from which observation posts and guns could be positioned and all the rest of it, which the Italians don't really do, thankfully, but 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 you know should have done. There's then a kind of a, a few plainy areas like the Catania Plain, which is sort of undulating, full of little sort of river courses and dikes and channels and all the rest of it, which is malaria infested um, um, with millions of mosquitoes. Um, and north of that, you've got Mount Etna, which dominates the entire northeast of the island, and it's the northeast of the island that the Allies need to get to because that's the Straits of Messina, which only comes from a mile or so, mile and a half at its narrowest, and that links Sicily to to the mainland, the main boot of Italy. So that's obviously your objective. Once you've got that, you've got the island. But 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 Mount Etna is a bit like sort of Sauron's eye from from Lord of the Rings. You know, it just dominates that whole central um a northeast part of the island you just can't miss it everywhere you look unless it's a kind of really cloudy day there it is um and it is from the foothills of the of, of mount etna that the germans and, and italians are, are able to kind of dominate the plain of catania should they wish to so that plain is very difficult the rest of it is just mountainous and it and it's absolutely brutal um there's very little infrastructure so a lot of the towns, because of kind of the threat of Barbary Corsairs back in the day, most settlements in in Sicily are towns. They tend to be on mountaintops where they're safest. Um, so there's very there aren't really villages as such. There's just towns, and, and to get to these towns, you've got to go up one sort of wiggly um, road full of switchbacks, get into these narrow streets, which are in no way suited to kind of you know twenty five pounders being towed or Sherman tanks and all the rest of it um, being manoeuvred around then go down the wiggly road down the other side and go up the next one. And it's just relentless. It's just one after another. Um, and, of course, in July and, and August 1943, it, it's brutally hot. The problems of water supply, of malaria, of dust, you know, if you're coming, you're advancing, anyone can see you because a lot of the roads aren't, aren't asphalted, aren't, aren't tarmac, so, you know, there's lots of dust caused as a result. Everyone can see you coming. Suddenly the shells start coming in, artillery, mortars, all the rest of it. I mean, it is it is a very, very tough place in which to fight. And ultimately, there's no real way of doing it other than just hill by hill, river feature by river feature, slogging your way through it uh, and kind of outblasting the enemy. And, and ultimately, that's what happens. But but the, the courage of, of the combatants on Sicily from both sides particularly from the German side and, and the Americans, the British and Canadians, is, is just, you know, it's, it's awe-inspiring. Now, as, as you allude to in the feature you've written for the magazine about this, a lot of historians have been critical of the Allied assault on Sicily, and particularly the fact that a number of German 
and Italian troops made it back to the mainland and weren't either captured or killed on the island. But am I right to say you would disagree with that assessment? I would disagree with that absolutely completely on, on so many different levels. I, I would say that most people who've, who've been critical of the Allies on Sicily haven't been there, uh, and if they have, they haven't walked the ground properly. Um, and I think there is this, you know, and we've talked about it before, Rob, there is this, there is this sort of missing bit in the narrative of the Second World War for a raft of historians who've been writing about it over the last 50 years, which is is the operational level. So if you understand that war is fought on three levels, the strategic, which is obviously your overall aims, the tactical, which is the actual fighting bit, uh, and the operational level, which is the bit that links the strategic to the operational, and it's the nuts and bolts. It's how people fight, how you manoeuvre. So I think too many historians have just been looking in terms of kind of who's got the biggest gun, who's got the fastest firing machine gun, you know, who's got the staying power, all the rest of it, and they kind of sort of say, you know, a German soldier can survive on four days rations that a you know a British or American soldier would expect to fight for one, but that's not a comparison of of capability. That 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 might be a, a comparison of of two different states. You know, one's a totalitarian, despotic state, militaristic state, and the other one's a democracy. But that doesn't mean to say that one side's better than the other. So I think the 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 bar on which people have been judging fighting prowess has been massively distorted and i think there is a basic misunderstanding of how the allies fight now one of the one of the things that the the british and also to a certain extent the americans have decided is that they're never going to retreat again they're just not going to go backwards and that's decided by by general then general alexander endorsed by montgomery and of course obviously by churchill back in august 1942 okay right that is the line we're not going backwards and and with very very few exceptions um market garden you know going back across the across the Rhine at Arnhem, for example, being one example, they basically stick to that. And that is because it's really, really bad news to be fighting and losing blood and losing comrades and then have to fight and retake it again another second time. It's much better to deploy your material wealth and solidly on a broad front just sort of chug your way forward. You know, that that saves lives and that's that ultimately is, and you're still going to win. So that's why they that's why they take that approach. And I think personally, I think that's absolutely the right approach. It's about reorganisation of your, your your forces, and it's about making sure you've always got enough so that you can maintain that that constant thrust. So what tends to happen is you probe forward, you get rebuffed, you then hold that line, you wait for the weight of material might to, to catch you up, and then you take it to another attack. Uh, and and I think that is a that is the approach they take in in Sicily, and I think that's broadly the right approach, to be perfectly honest. Um, but it's also a misunderstanding of how things operate because if you, I mean, let's just take for example, um, uh, I, I don't know, a field regiment of twenty-four, twenty-five pounders. Well, a twenty-four five pounder is towed by um, a gun tractor, which is basically a sort of big truck, and an ammunition limber, and the total length of that is probably, I don't know, thirty yards, twenty-five yards. Times that by twenty-four. Put that on a narrow road, which is being shelled and bombed and where there's holes and craters and stuff. And you've got to wiggle that all the way up through a town, down through a town, down the other side, in plain view of German guns, doing little detours which the engineers have rapidly kind of sorted out because the road's being blown, then find a position in which to dig in their guns, then do and you know, support the infantry on the next attack. You start to understand why it takes as long as it takes. And when you're in Sicily and you're looking at that landscape and you're looking at the constraints of that and you're looking at all the kind of topographical, geographical um, and heat issues and dust and all the rest of it that are hindering your advance, you think 38 days to capture this, good effort. (laughs) That's what you think. 
But to go back to your, your point about the number of troops that, uh, that evacuated, it's 39,800 or something German troops get away, of which about 25,000 are fighting troops. So that's less than two divisions. By the following April, there are something like 24 divisions, German divisions operating in, in, in Italy. So two divisions is neither here nor there in the big scheme of things. That is not a decisive amount of troops that's going to make any difference whatsoever. There are also already, by the time of the evacuation, divisions in Italy, uh, German divisions in Italy, waiting for what the Allies might do next. The other point I would say is, is that if you look at evacuations in the Second World War, they're nearly always successful, from Dunkirk through to Operation Hannibal. Dunkirk, obviously, 338,000 men, literally every single man that could still walk, was lifted from the beach. When General Alexander and Bill Tennant go down on the night of Sunday the 3rd of of June or whenever it was, 2nd of June, um, and they do their last sort of rounds down the beaches of Dunkirk, they've got a megaphone from their launch and they go, is anyone there? Is anyone there? And not a single person replies. Every single person is lifted from Dunkirk and taken back, you know, between 80 and 50 miles back across the sea. The Straits of Messina, the Germans have got to go, you know, a matter of a couple of miles uh, on the most heavily defended stretch of coastland anywhere in the world. You know, 333 guns either side of that narrow stretch uh, on the Straits of Messina. And it's just simply impossible to stop them. And then you go back to Operation Hannibal at the very end of the war in April 1945, the evacuation of East Prussia, where two million Germans and German troops are evacuated where they've got absolutely no air cover whatsoever, no guns whatsoever, and creaking, ageing hulks of ships that are kind of sort of basically only due for the scrapyard. And they still managed to get two million away from under the noses of the Red Army. Makes you realise that evacuations genuinely are pretty successful. So again, I think, you know, the problem is that historians have looked at, at the end of the Sicilian campaign in terms of what followed afterwards at Salerno and subsequent campaign in Sicily, which, you know, was blighted by bad weather, Hitler changing his mind, deciding to fight for every yard and all the rest of it, and a horrific winter. Um, and that sort of clouds what the, the, the enormous achievement of the victory. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, Germany has always treated its allies in the Second World War with utter contempt. Um, and you see the kind of the apogee of that, really, in, in the run-up to Sicily in the Sicilian campaign. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. 
match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, obviously, during the Sicily campaign, Mussolini's regime is, is toppled Italy. How far was the attack on Sicily responsible for his downfall? Yeah, uh, that's a, that's a really really interesting question. I, I think I think it was doomed already. Actually, uh, uh, you, I think the moment where Italy is spent is the end of the Tunisian campaign. And one of the ironies of it is that, I mean, the Italian military was absolutely rotten to the core, but by the end of the Tunisian campaign, there were a number of units that were. Where, where there were a number of key personnel, officers and senior NCOs, who had learned the hard way through experience rather than through training back in Italy about how to fight, which is why at the very end of the Tunisian campaign, you've got some Italian troops there who are really pretty good. You know, they've just learned on the job, in the sand and dust of North Africa, they've learned how to kind of fight. Um which is one of the reasons why Montgomery is so keen to overload Husky with so many troops because he's come up, 8th Army has come up against the Italian, mostly the Italians out in Fiederville and hit a brick wall, can't get through. And he goes, whoa, crikey, you know, if they're tough now in Tunisia, what are, gonna, what are they going to be like when they're actually fighting on their own soil in Sicily? Now, probably they're a busted flush, but what if they're not? You know, we've got to be cautious. And I think he was absolutely right to show that caution, to be honest. But actually, that is the last gasp because the troops, the Italian troops and Sicilian troops that are on Sicily are, are, are troops that haven't got that experience of fighting in the Soviet Union or, or fighting in North Africa. They're kind of basically greenhorns who, who are kind of new to combat. And so they've come through the Italian system, military system, which is just awful and rotten. And they're not properly equipped and they're not properly trained. And they're kind of, you know, 20 years out of date in terms of technology and they're absolutely brushed aside um, as a result of that. And I think what happens in Tunisia is that is the moment where the Italians go, do you know what? We're completely fed up with this. There's no point. We can't win. This is just going to cause more pain and bloodshed. And what they're all realising, what the senior Italians command is realising, is this massive shift in public mood, which is a state that is not as totalitarian in Nazi Germany. Although Mussolini is a fascist dictator, is still it is still a royal kingdom. It is a you know, there is a king still in place. There are checks on on the totality of of um, Mussolini's dictatorship. And they also recognize that what they've got to do is try and get out of the war without an appalling backlash from the Germans. And so they're suddenly caught between a rock and a hard place. So I think I think it is already over, but it's just accelerated by what happens in Sicily. I think, I think you know it would have happened in probably July, uh, late July. I'm sorry, sorry, August or September had it not happened in July rather. Um, but but the writing is on the wall. Mussolini is 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 losing the plot in a very big way by this stage. You know he, he's he's physically and mentally spent. Um, and and it's just all over, um, you know, and and it's just 
the Italians are looking for a way out. And, and the Germans know this. They absolutely know this. So trust has completely broken down, which was never particularly good in the first place. But it, but it is absolutely rotten to the core. And you, you see this in, in, you know, the Germans very quickly want nothing to do with the Italians on Sicily. Um, uh, and the only kind of attempt at a coordinated attack really is is in the counterattack against the Americans on 10th, 11th, 12th of July. Um, and thereafter, the Germans go, right, we're on our own now. We're just going to do our own thing. We're going to reinforce and, and play by our own rules. We, we might coerce some Italian gunners, but otherwise completely keep out of it. I mean, it's amazing that even before Husky happens, uh, um, the Regia Aeronautica and the Luftwaffe operating on Sicily are operating totally separately. There's no coordination whatsoever. There's no sharing of information. There's no sharing of radars or anything like that. They are just absolutely, totally operating in isolation. Uh, and, you know, Germany has always treated its allies in the Second World War with utter contempt. Um, and you see the kind of the apogee of that, really, in, in the run-up to Sicily in the Sicilian campaign. And so beyond the fall of Mussolini, what what are the other significant consequences of allied victory in Sicily? Well, it is. it does mean you've got this toehold in Europe. It does mean that... that um, Germany has to kind of fill that void of Italy coming out of the war, which I think is really significant. I think it's, I think, I think the, the the really big thing, the really big significant fact about Sicily is, first of all, it's a success for the Allies. So it proves that their kind of their modus operandi, their their way of war is working. That there's there's honing to be done, but the basic principles of it are are correct. This is how to this is how to win, um, and, and and they pull that off. I think the second thing is is they realise that that airborne operations need an awful lot more work before they can be used in a serious way and be a key part of, of future operations. And it is already accepted that they're going to be a key part of the overlord, uh, the D-Day invasion of Normandy the following year. So things need to be improved massively because I think it's fair to say that the airborne operations on Sicily are total utter fiasco. And that's just because they've been hustled into use without proper training. You know, there isn't proper coordination. I mean, the, the the troops themselves are are superb. It's the delivery to the battlefield that's the issue. That's what needs to be honed by by the following year and still isn't properly by then, to be, be perfectly honest. Um, I think the other benefits are, are, are that you've got this toehold in Europe, you've got Italy out of the war, um, and, and you've got a stepping stone to, to Italy. And I think there are, again, there's very good reasons for going into Italy in September 1943 because, you know, what are you going to do with the forces until the following May when D-Day is supposed to happen? You know, what, what's going to happen? And and um, actually what persuades the Americans is the idea of getting the uh, the Foggia airfields, which is this central sort of southern part of, of of Italy, the mainland of Italy. It's a sort of low, one of rare, low-lying area where there is a sort of complex of networks uh, of airfields where they can deliver strategic air forces from which they can sort of further tighten the noose around Nazi Germany with strategic air power, which in turn limits the number of men you need on the ground. That's the principle behind it. Um, and that's what persuades the, the Americans. So all these things, I think, um, it, it's it's it is about closing that ring around Nazi Germany. And, and, and that is what Sicily plays. A, that's where Sicily plays a really key part. And how important do you think the success of Sicily was for what happened in D-Day? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. A, I think it is important um, for all those reasons that I mentioned. Really, kind of learning the lessons, kind of proving that you know this formation is right, and actually kind of pointing out what what still needs to be done for for Normandy. You know, one of the key lessons is that you know you can't have field commanders also planning another major operation at the same time. So you know, at the end of nineteen forty three. Eisenhower, Montgomery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, various air force commanders like Tui Spots, um, Cunningham—they're all withdrawn from the Mediterranean and sent to Britain, so they can concentrate f- 
solely on Operation Overlord um, and the Normandy invasion, rather than being distracted with operations that they're currently involved with um, in the Mediterranean. Um, Airborne forces, yep, you know, they've got to kind of, that clearly needs an overhaul and needs a hell of a lot more training. Um, and they realise that they do need just more and more shipping, you know, and that's the that's the big race. That's the that's the constraining factor in Normandy, as just as it is with every amphibious operation. Um, but really, I think it's that kind of way of war. I think it's that kind of working out, you know, yeah, this is this is the way to do it. This is this is how we're going to do this. It's this brotherhood of air, land, and sea. And actually, one story I was going to ask you about was Operation Mincemeat, the deception operation, which we we didn't actually come to before, and obviously again. There were similar operations before D-Day. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what happened at Mincemeat. Yeah, so Mincemeat, it's, it's a really interesting, it's a fantastic story. And this is the Double Cross Committee, which is uh, part of British, British Secret Intelligence um, uh, Service, uh, uh, MI6. And um, it's a plan to sort of do a deception plan to, to, to dissuade the Germans, particularly, that Sicily is not the next target after the end of... Um, the North African campaign. And what they do is they find this Dionan out and they they who's died and they use his body and pretend he's um uh, a Royal Marine um officer who's got key plans for future operations and they ditch him at sea off the coast of um uh, of southern Spain with the idea that he'll wash onto the shore the Spanish authorities will pick him up find the papers and hand those over to the Germans and it will show them that that actually the next stop is Sardinia and with the main intention of being the Balkans and Greece as the next stop and not Sicily um and and so it comes to pass and and the Spanish do pick him up they do find the, the documents they do pass them on um and it is they are read and it, and it is a it is the most fantastical story and i'm um like many um other hundreds of thousands of people i absolutely love ben mcintyre's book on this i mean you know he's such a brilliant writer and um and it's a fantastic story did it have a big effect on on the sicilian campaign you know you'd have to say not at all no because hitler tended to view his enemy through the same prism as he viewed the world himself. So for Hitler, the most vulnerable spot in the Mediterranean are the Balkans, because that's where the oil fields are. So therefore, that is where the Allies will land. So the mincemeat operation, all that does is reinforce his own view, whereas pretty much everyone else recognises that Sicily is almost certainly going to be the next Allied objective, because that's the only place the Allies could effectively launch a major amphibious operation with air cover. And anyone who's anyone recognises that air cover is apt and air superiority over the invasion front is an absolute prerequisite for any amphibious operation. And Sardinia is just about possible but it's really stretching it and there's why would you go to sardinia when you could go to sicily which is just 60 miles away from sicily uh, from malta which is basically a kind of you know a massive aircraft carrier stuck in the middle of the mediterranean um so mincemeat doesn't dissuade mussolini or general student or uh, general roatta or von Senger or kesselring or any of those people that are pretty convinced it's going to be sicily uh, and it just reinforces what's happening. Um, in the, it just reinforces the view of Hitler. So I don't think it makes any difference whatsoever. And uh, during the course of your research, maybe not for this book, but perhaps previously, have you met many veterans who served on Sicily? Yeah, I have met quite a few, uh, and all of them talk about just how hot it was. Really, they just say it was absolutely brutal and completely miserable from start to finish. Um, and it's like you know, it's like anywhere in in 
in the Second World War, you know, if you're unfortunate enough to be in the infantry or, or the armoured units particularly, you're just going to have a really horrible time because casualty rates are just so enormous. Overall casualties are not not high as a proportion of the of the of the armies involved, but that's because um, British, Canadian, American armies are very kind of have a very very long tail, where you know kind of over forty percent of the troops are, are service corps, and then you've got engineers, and then you've got you know artillery and all the rest of it, and medical troops and blah blah blah. So you know the the actual spearhead the tip of the spear the infantry and the armor is is as a proportion is comparatively small but if you're unfortunate to be in the infantry or the armor then your chances of getting through unscathed are, are, are pretty small and you know people just talk about the heat i mean just how awful it was and just constantly being thirsty and the miles they had to tramp and and you know it's very thin soil so mortars and ricochets and little shards of stone are much more lethal than they ever were in northwest europe where you know big scheme of things you know particularly in the winter where it's wet it's the conditions might be miserable but but a mortar is going to have far less effect than a mortar is going to be on the top of troina or centurope or azoro in in sicily for example so those are the kind of main takes i got from it i mean the fighter pilots, for the most part, kind of rather enjoyed it, I think, because they had, you know, particularly allied ones, they had such um, superiority. I've never had a chance to talk to any um, Luftwaffe veterans. I've, I have did talk to a couple of um, um, uh, Regia Aeronautica, uh, Italian Air Force veterans. Um, the Luftwaffe veterans were just, had, you know, just had a terrible time. And there's an amazing, amazing account of, of the air battle for Sicily by um, Johannes Steinhoff, who was a legendary um, Luftwaffe fighter pilot. Um, and he he kept a diary, and he then wrote it up post war called the Straits of Messina, and it's just stupendously good, um, and really moving. You just can't help but feel sorry for them, even though they're on the wrong side, and and it's it is just a mirror image of what the RAF were, were suffering on Malta back a year earlier in 1942. You know the same privations, the same difficulties, the same being outnumbered, all the rest of it. But um, yeah, I think I think Sicily was a pretty pretty tough place to be in 1943 that's for sure whatever side you're on and do you think it gets overlooked at all the sicily campaign when compared to things like el alamein d-day some of the perhaps more famous yeah massively so i don't really understand it i mean my mine's my book is the first sort of big narrative history of the campaign since 1988 or something which is when carlo deste um tackled it there have been other books on it but but you know not a not a sort of big narrative history you know, I find that absolutely amazing because it is at this really interesting tipping point. It is at this moment, this change of fortunes and this this kind of sort of, to say, this sort of, you know, the, the Allies kind of working out what their way of war is. And it is the first Allied re-entry into Europe. You know, it seems to me like a really big, significant moment. And it was huge news at the time. I think it just gets overshadowed by Casino and, and Normandy and, you know, subsequent events and Arnhem and Battle of Belgium and all the rest of it, these other things that followed. Um, and I suppose for, for a large number of people, you know, there's been more films, haven't there, about D-Day and Normandy and stuff. It's easier to visit if you're British or, or frankly, even if you're American than it is to go to go to Sicily. And I think it's just sort of, you know, it's just sort of slightly fallen off the kind of, off the kind of well-known narrative. But, you know, that's one of the reasons for doing the book to kind of try and rectify that. That was James Holland. Sicily 43 is out now, published by Bantam Press. And as I mentioned before, you can also read a piece by James in the January issue of BBC History magazine. That's out now and includes articles on Thomas Beckett, Bonnie Prince Charlie, the history of vaccines and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an archive episode about a train journey that changed the course of the 20th century. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.